If we don't go net negative, we'll be followed by centuries of elevated temperature. And importantly, sea level rise will be at its greatest rate and will continue on after that point. Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week, Joseph Micah talks with Pete Irvine and Jesse Reynolds about human interventions to counter climate change, including the potential and the limits of social engineering. Pete and Jesse together are the co-hosts of the podcast, Challenging Climate. Jesse is the Senior Policy Officer at the Global Commission on Governing Risks from Climate Overshoot at the Paris Peace Forum. And Pete is lecturer in climate change and social engineering with University College London Earth Sciences. Joseph, Jesse, and Pete talk about the opportunities and challenges of emerging technologies to intervene in earth climate systems in order to counter climate change. They also look at where international institutions are or should play a role in managing these efforts. And they discuss the state of public and private research in climate engineering. I'll turn it over to Joseph now. Jesse and Peter, I'm really grateful that you're both joining us today. For our audience, you know, we've all known each other for a few years. We've interacted in various forms. And, and you two are among a group of people that I think of as being really interesting thinkers on how climate risk itself gets managed. Sometimes the climate problem it's a little bit broken up. There's mitigation, there's adaptation. There are other tools to manage climate risks, which we are going to hopefully talk about today, but not a lot of people kind of think about climate risks in, in an overall package. So I, I'm really like one, personally excited to see you both today, but also to have a conversation around how we should think about climate risk at this point in time. So welcome to the uh, Energy 360 podcast. I'd like to dive right in. You know, since we've all spoken with each other, there was the big COP in Glasgow in the fall of 2021. We've seen reports from the sixth assessment performed by the IPCC for the science of climate change, for the impacts and adaptation side of things, and for the mitigation side of things. So it might be really good to start maybe with Jesse. For your picture of, of where we are at with the climate issue right now and, and what you see being the, the principal areas of scholarship and attention for the next few years. That's a broad question. <laughs> I'd step back and look at the history of the future in the sense of what have been the projections of warming. And the good news is that the projections of future warming, often given at the end of this century, so in the year 2100, have generally been decreasing. So we're making progress. We're cutting emissions in ways that are better than expected. That's the good news. The bad news is that that's not enough. So forecast warming at the year 2100 has decreased from, let's say, four degrees Celsius down more to the neighborhood of three. And it might be the case that we can bend this down further to, let's say, two and a half, perhaps two degrees Celsius by the end of the century. So that's the mixed news. So what we need to start looking at are these other ways to reduce climate risk. And you phrased it as, a, as an issue of risk management. And one of the central pillars of risk management in general, whether it's an environmental hazard or your portfolio that you're investing in towards retirement, is diversification. 
So as we see that cutting emissions is making progress and we should continue this, it's clear that we also need to adapt societies and natural systems to a changing climate. We need to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere as a, in order to reach net zero emissions and eventually net negative emissions in order to reduce the uh, carbon dioxide concentration in the air because CO2 stays in the air. It's a persistent pollution. And perhaps what's called solar radiation modification or solar geoengineering means to block or reflect a small portion of incoming sunlight in order to cool the planet, which is something that volcanoes do naturally, as a possible additional risk management measure, as an additional way to reduce climate change and its impacts. Pete, anything to add? Well, I guess I, I just say, um, I think Jesse's story there, I, I totally agree with. You sort of started from our worst case scenarios, we're up at the four or five Celsius range, and they're coming down, down, down. On the flip side, our kind of best case scenarios, how rapidly we could cut emissions, time has passed. Uh, and also, I think even when it came out, the Paris Agreement and the goal of limiting warming to one and a half Celsius, I presumed that the 2018 report by the IPCC would shoot it down, but it didn't. There was just, there's just enough time if we just stretch and do everything to get there. And we're seven years out. And still, I think a lot of people are saying we can just get there if we stretch and do absolutely everything. But it's looking more and more implausible, especially given that countries have now said how much they're going to cut emissions by 2030. And, you know, to limit warming to one and a half Celsius required us to cut emissions by 50 percent by 2030, something like that, starting a few years ago. The commitments that countries have made are instead to have emissions roughly where they are today in 2030. Now, I think on the good news side, Jesse mentioned this, that the, the increasing interest in net zero and in, in negative emissions, partly as a result of this, you know, if we wanted to limit warming to one and a half Celsius, we're already recognizing we might overshoot, even under ambitious scenarios, we might overshoot for a short while, for some decades, drag temperatures and CO2 down by pulling CO2 out of the air. That was very sort of theoretical. It was a bit of a model construct a few years back. But there's real movement I see in terms of the policy, business, and the science around uh, negative emissions technologies. I mean, these are technologies that will really have their impact in the second half of the century. But the fact that there's a lot of movement now means that there's some hope this will materialize. I think our, our range of futures are constraining as time goes on. But the worst case scenarios are, are being ruled out, more or less. And to some extent, the hopes of limiting warming to one and a half Celsius without substantially overshooting it for many decades are, I'd say they're, they're gone now, but it depends how optimistic you are. Well, when it comes to overshoot, Jesse was recently appointed as the executive secretary for the Global Commission on Governing Risks from Climate Overshoot. I think we're going to use we're going to call it the Climate Overshoot Commission in this conversation today. Jesse, is that a tool for, for managing the risks of slightly missing the 1.5 C target, but still living in a in a century where emissions are are declining. What's the commission going to do? You actually offered a, a pretty good description of its objectives. It's uh, a high level advisory commission, separate from governments and separate from the United Nations, but with the intention of speaking to them. And the idea is to say, look, we all agree that the first priority is and must remain cutting greenhouse gas emissions. But because we all agree on that, 
let's set this off to the side for the moment so that we can have a conversation about these additional means to reduce climate change risks. And as I said in my previous answer, there's three additional means, enhanced and accelerated adaptation, carbon dioxide removal, and possibly solar radiation modification. But each of these poses some degree of limitations and challenges, and, and there's governance gaps. How fast can we adapt human and natural systems to a changing climate? What are the limits? What are the bottlenecks? What are the levers that we can pull to get effective action? How fast can we scale up carbon dioxide removal without excessive unwanted secondary environmental, social, and economic impacts? How can we integrate removals into climate policy where the orientation is understandably towards reducing emissions, but removals are something similar but different? What's the question here around accounting? And the biggest governance gaps are clearly around solar radiation modification. This is a highly leveraged technology where it appears to be, should I say, and that it's not ready to be switched on, but it, it appears to be technically feasible and relatively inexpensive and fast acting. So you can imagine that questions of who decides when and how to do it are, are serious, and it's unclear where such decisions should and could be made. So this Climate Overshoot Commission will look at these options, think about where the existing governance is sufficient, identify the gaps, and make recommendations to the climate change policy community for how to address these gaps so that we can reduce the risks of overshoot. And key to that is so that overshoot is as low of a magnitude as possible and for as short of a time as possible. Now, may, I, yeah, go, go ahead, Pete. I think it's, it's worth, worth also recognizing that this overshoot, this peaking of temperatures and then temperatures declining, isn't inevitable. Like if we just eliminate CO2 emissions, the climate doesn't go back the way it was. CO2 will persist in the atmosphere for hundreds and thousands of years. And as the planet hasn't fully warmed up to the CO2 and other gases that are already up there, the fact that, you know, yes, CO2 concentrations will naturally start falling over the course of the century after we eliminate CO2 emissions, but so will the warming build up. And the two more or less cancel so that temperatures will effectively reach a plateau once we eliminate CO2 emissions. So that date of net zero emissions if we don't go net negative, we'll be followed by centuries of elevated temperature. And importantly, sea level rise will be at its greatest rate and will continue on after that point. So the shape of the climate problem is going to shift. Our understanding of it is going to shift. And I think the a focus on overshoot, as this commission is doing, is, is will perhaps open our eyes a bit to the, to the fact that the climate problem is going to persist beyond 2100 in important ways. Most of the discussion stops at 2100, and I think there was some, some artificialness to the scenarios that included large amounts of CDR initially, because in a way, I think there's a little bit of a fudge to achieve one and a half Celsius by 2100, because that's what the focus was. You know, the only way to do it was to drive CO2 down rapidly with, with negative emissions. I think we need to think about you know, this, this world. Do we, would we rather plateau temperatures or drive them down, and, and how much would it cost to do that? And when you talk about a commission like this, you know, it's really fun to get high level people in the room together. But Jesse, if you'll indulge us one more question, what do you hope to see and, and what's the path to impact for a group like this? Right. Is it 
leveraging more capital toward adaptation? Is it helping to build a, a global structure for how we're going to manage the long-term questions that Pete raises about what should the global temperature be if we're even considering managing it in a downward direction? Or is it to deal with the thorny challenges of intervening in the atmosphere to try and, and stem the worst effects of climate change? The short answer is possibly all of the above. The commission, which hasn't met yet, has a mandate, which I roughly described in my previous answer. And it's up to them which direction they, they go, what they emphasize, and it's certainly up to them what they recommend. Their ultimate purpose is to reduce climate risks, especially on those people and those ecosystems that are most exposed to climate hazards. Given that we have two of our globe's experts on both the potential risk reductions that could come from solar geoengineering, as well as how we might govern solar geoengineering research, experiments, or implementation. I'd like to spend a little time discussing that issue. In the U.S., there was a sort of flash of interest in solar geoengineering, I think over a decade ago now, sort of glibly seen as, hey, we don't need to do all this costly stuff to produce greenhouse gas emissions. We've got a cheap fix associated with injecting aerosols into the high atmosphere. I don't think that's the, the picture we get from science. I don't think that's how people are talking about implementing solar geoengineering. Pete, you're one of the leading scientific experts on this issue. Can you give us and our audience a picture, starting from the science, like what is solar geoengineering? How does it work? And how do we think about it as a means of reducing the risks of climate change? Well, I think it's probably worth starting by the fact that the, the Earth is fundamentally warmed by the sun. The climate is heated by the sun. It only stays warm because of the natural greenhouse effect. But they're warming the planet by trapping heat. But we could cool the planet by either reflecting sunlight or finding some other way to help that heat get out of the system. Most of the solar engineering ideas, and I think all the ones that have got real potential, deal with reflecting more sunlight. The leading idea is stratospheric aerosol geoengineering. It's an idea that would mimic the cooling effect of major volcanic eruptions. There's not been that many in the 20th century, Pinatubo and a few others in 1991. But yeah, eruptions like Mount Tambora in 1815, Krakatoa in 1884, these really powerful explosive eruptions have all been observed to cool the climate in the years that follow by a few degrees. So how they do this is they release, you know, you see these plumes of rock and dust and ash and CO2. But for the climate, it's the sulfur dioxide that they release that's the most important factor. This converts into sulfuric acid, which then forms very tiny, very reflective particles. And um, you know, in the lower atmosphere, we emit quite a lot of sulfur dioxide, and it has quite a large cooling effect from polluting ships, from coal power plants, and so on. That has been quite a major cooling effect that's partially offset the warming effect of greenhouse gases. But in the lower atmosphere, it very quickly gets mixed into clouds and gets rained out. So the particles only scatter light, only cool the planet for a few days. If you can get them up into the stratosphere, that's the layer of stable layer of atmosphere above the mixed dynamic troposphere that we live in, above the tops of the clouds, there the strong winds can circulate whatever you put up there or whatever the volcanoes put up there around the whole world, east-west, and then toward the poles. So a single eruption in the Philippines has produced a global aerosol layer that cooled the planet for a few years. And we could do this artificially. The stratosphere is pretty high up. Most jets don't fly that high. But engineering assessments are all have all come to the conclusion that we could get there at a relatively low cost 
with existing technology, but you know, in a re- redesigned high altitude jet. So yeah, the costs are something of the order of 10 billion, tens of billions of dollars per year to like fully offset future warming, which is a large amount of money, but is a small amount of money relative to the investments that will be needed into renewable technologies and the shift to a low carbon economy, and also small relative to the impacts of climate change and the cost of adaptation but still fairly substantial. Yeah, this idea, we are certain it would cool the planet because we know that the volcanoes do so. Exactly what would happen to the climate in all its details, we don't know. But we can, again, be fairly sure, or we can be pretty sure that it will offset most temperature changes in most places. And many of the risks of climate change are correlated with temperature. That's the leading proposal. I'd say marine cloud brightening is a second proposal that has, has real potential. Here, the idea is certain low-lying clouds over the ocean could be made brighter. We have some evidence that this would work from what are called ship tracks. When ships pass underneath these cloud banks, they often leave these white trails behind them through the cloud. This is because the the pollution particles emitted by the ships help to seed, seed cloud droplets. And you end up with a cloud that has more smaller droplets for the same amount of water and with more smaller droplets, you scatter more light to space and you cool. And so there are proposals to, to do this, but not with pollution, with sea salt, to spray sea salt into the underside of the susceptible clouds to brighten them and to cool these patches. One area where that's particularly interesting is in the Great Barrier Reef. There are some efforts to potentially, well, they've, they've have done a field test of this idea, first of its kind, and they're quite seriously considering developing this idea to help manage the fact that heat will annihilate the Great Barrier Reef in short order. When you say um, they, who's they? They, I can't remember the name of the project, but there's a Great Barrier Reef, let's say the restoration project, I can't recall off the top of my head, but they're considering a whole range of interventions because the prospects for the Great Barrier Reef and for tropical coral reefs in general are so poor. The, effectively, many of them will be doomed by one and a half Celsius. And I think it's more than 99% of tropical coral reefs will be driven out of their current locations under two Celsius of warming. Jesse, you you wrote the book on how geoengineering might be governed. He gave us a good scientific picture, but if it's so easy to offset climate risk using these techniques, why aren't we already doing it? And what might a world where geoengineering is being more seriously thought about, considered, or even practiced look like from a governance perspective? We're not doing it now, I think, for two reasons. I think there's a political reason that's strong and a scientific reason that is questionable or less strong at the very least. And the political reason is that solar geoengineering or solar radiation modification, these terms are synonymous, were not part of the initial approach to reducing climate change risks. The UNFCCC, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, focuses rightly on emissions reduction and adaptation and implicitly carbon dioxide removal. If you read carefully, it talks about enhancements of sinks and reservoirs. And I think that that can be interpreted to talk about carbon dioxide removal. And the objective of the UNFCCC is the stabilization of greenhouse gas concentrations, which solar geoengineering would not directly affect. So solar geoengineering remained in the background. And understandably so, there's an intuition that is usually justified that if you're trying to reduce environmental risks, then 
all things being equal, the best thing to do is to intervene less. All things being equal, I think that that's a justifiable approach. But here we are starting to approach the 1.5 degree goal of the Paris Agreement, the more ambitious goal within the Paris Agreement. And the topic of solar geoengineering has moved from the furthest back shadows of the climate change conversations, gradually a little bit more towards the respectability and something to be taken seriously. But that's a, that's a slow process. And it remains a little bit unclear where these processes and where these conversations should, ha should happen. What's the role of the IPCC? What's the role of the UNFCCC? Other intergovernmental organizations have dabbled in governance and so forth, like uh, the UN Environment Program and the parties to the Convention on Biological Diversity. So there's a certain understandable sense of caution. Now, the scientific reason initially looks very strong. Why would we introduce this perturbation, this uh, intervention into the, into the climate when we're not sure we're going to need it? It does make sense to have the knowledge and capacity to use SRM if it's necessary. The one limitation to this approach is to realize, oh, we might benefit using SRM, let's say, if we're well above 1.5 or 2 degrees, if we're up in 2.5 or so. But in order to develop the knowledge of that, then there's a case that we need to be expanding research more rapidly, and that might include small-scale outdoor tests. What Pete mentioned a moment ago around the marine cloud brightening, it was a field test of, of, of equipment only, not, not any type of climate response or even how the clouds would respond. It was primarily a test around, can we spray sea salt high enough and at a fine enough mist that we could that we could have an impact. So if by doing it, it one means an advanced research program, I think the case is pretty strong. That needs to be moving forward to some degree. On your second question about what would governance look like, that is in some ways the million dollar question. One could imagine a centralized, nearly global, multilateral, consensual decision-making process grounded in United Nations institutions. One can imagine a decentralized process of a, let's say, a dozen or so countries that coordinate major activities. Or one could imagine a, a, something more chaotic where various countries are doing diverse interventions, perhaps with suboptimal coordination and communication and with suboptimal outcomes. And that seems to be something that, that there's a consensus that we'd like to avoid that, that last possibility. Pete, go ahead. I guess I'd just like to add on the, you know, why we're we not doing it already. I mean, I think everyone I know who's come across this idea, their initial reaction is, oh my God, surely not. <laughs> and, and I think that's a, that's a healthy reaction. It's, a, it's an incredibly bold proposal it will clearly rock the boat of climate change to what end, who knows, in a sense. So I think everyone, when they come across it initially, has that reaction. And then who has the expertise to work out whether it makes sense? I mean, it's there's a whole set of climate change. How would the climate respond to this kind of intervention? You know, what kind of dynamics would result? Then even if you know that, there's the question of, well, what would all the impacts be? And how do you weigh thinning of ozone layer against a reduction in heat stress? Then, of course, there's the governance issues. Jesse proposed some, some things there. There's ethical questions. Is it the right way to approach something like the Earth system? 
And yeah, any person who has that idea then doesn't have the expertise to see the whole picture. I mean, it's a problem as complicated as climate change, which is you know hugely complicated and multifaceted. So what I don't hear either of you invoking is that solar geoengineering is contemplated as a way to offset the effects of continued emissions over the course of this century, right? I hear you talking about it in terms of like preventing overshoot for 1.5C, having particular goals associated with coral reefs, vulnerable populations, changes, you know, preventing too much change to the hydrological cycle, the way rain falls. Are we in a position to start answering those questions with research? So I think you're right. I mean, maybe the fear that underlies this that I didn't make clear is that, you know, what if, you know, the conservative right wing side in America takes hold of this and that's their climate solution. Forget mitigation. We're doing this instead. I mean, I think it's worth stressing that that would be a bad idea. I think, as Jesse pointed out, it, it doesn't address the underlying cause, which is the buildup of CO2. It offsets the symptoms of warming. And it therefore isn't a solution. You know, you'd have to keep doing, if you wanted to keep temperatures low and then keep emitting CO2, you'd be doing that indefinitely. So I think it's worth saying that nobody in the field proposes that as a wise way forward. I think we all look at this as a potential complementary means on top of other policies. You know, in this, you've, you've got an overshoot scenario, maybe we can help shave that peak, keep temperatures below some threshold. But really, it is not a substitute for these other technologies. And I think that's the big worry. Well, I think, of course, it's not a substitute. Those out there might think that it is. And there'll be a risk that it'll, it'll delay emissions cuts and cause problems that way. It would be helpful to hear from Pete a little bit about what solar geoengineering research looks like. And what does an increased effort look like, let's say, over the next decade? Yeah, I think talk about controlling the weather. I think it's worth distinguishing. There's um, efforts to cloud seed to cause rain in different places. This is something that I think private companies do in the US and other countries and is done at a very large scale in China and Russia. That's largely overlooked by the atmospheric science community. It's, like it's not taken that seriously, though there, there might be something there. But um, yeah, this is completely distinct from all these geoengineering ideas. So in terms of geoengineering ideas, we mentioned one field test that's been done for marine cloud brightening, which was relatively small. The vast bulk of the scientific work or almost all the scientific work is modeling and a bit of theory. So we, we have the tools that we use to assess and project the impacts of climate change are the same tools that we will use for solar engineering and we have been using. So it's the very same models, you know, they, we can sort of, you know, they test, they can simulate the volcanic eruptions of the past fairly well. So we go, right, well, if we can do that fairly well, let's see how it does for stratospheric aerosol engineering. There's a number of shortcomings and model improvements we need to make, but we we will use the same tools there. But I mean, as, as Jesse was saying, a relatively small portion of our total modeling capability has been devoted to this topic. We've, we've used a handful of the models out of the full set, not that many resources. It's also worth noting that beyond the physical climate modeling focus, I'd say something around half the research, I'm not sure exactly on the proportion, is social science, humanities, other considerations, so public perception, governance questions. I think even all the natural scientists recognize this is not just about whether it could change the climate, how it works. It's should we do it? What does the public think? How would you govern it? Is it ethical? Um, these are discussions I, I'm keen to be involved in, and, I'm, and many of my colleagues, natural scientists, are as well. But yeah, it's um, in terms of the research, some has been funded by national governments, some is sort of bottom up spare time, you know, PhD projects aren't sort of captured in some of this funding totals. 
And then quite a bit is philanthropically funded. There's quite a lot of philanthropic funding in the US uh, primarily, but I think a little elsewhere. In terms of national funding, the UK's done some, Norway's done some, Germany did some, China did a bit. But I think the US has spent the most so far on this topic. So, you know, the questions that arise with solar geoengineering are as complex as the ones that arise with climate change itself. We've got governance questions pure science questions and the regime over which you're, you're thinking can go from the very micro to the whole planet. CSIS is a national security and strategy think tank. We thought, you know, Jesse, you mentioned this sort of like unsavory world where solar geoengineering is a sort of contested intervention that happens based on small groups of countries or, or single movers. Have we thought enough about the national security and implications of solar geoengineering and do we need to do more? My sense is that more attention should be given to the national security implications of solar geoengineering, as well as climate change more generally, um, which, of course, your podcast is part of building that bridge between the climate change community and the national security community more broadly. And in fact, that's that's a key project of not just your podcast, but your organization as a whole, that any technology that is as highly leveraged as SRM does raise significant questions about rearranging power relations between countries. Some people assume that, well, you know, this is a, a world of superpowers and superpowers would use solar geoengineering uh, at the expense of other countries, perhaps. But one can also imagine that the countries that are most motivated to use solar geoengineering, perhaps contrary to any international consensus, would be those countries that are most at risk of and perhaps experiencing the impacts of climate change. And yeah, a full program might cost tens of billions of dollars per year, but perhaps it could be done on the cheap for uh, an order of magnitude less. And the technology, once again, to do it right, requires advanced specialized aircraft and monitoring equipment, et cetera, but to do it on sloppy, let's say, just to get some stuff up in the upper atmosphere might not require such novel equipment. So all of a sudden you have the possibility of a highly leveraged technology, which would probably affect the entire world being undertaken by a broader class of countries. I don't imagine so-called non-state actors, as political scientists say. But one could imagine emerging economies that are highly vulnerable to climate change being the ones to push the envelope. There's a scenario that's been put forth. Uh, I think I first heard it from the late Steve Rayner, who said, maybe it's an act of civil disobedience on the part of climate-vulnerable countries who recognize they don't have the, the money and the technical resources to do a long-term sustained, optimally managed solar geoengineering intervention. But they could do it as a means to provoke greater climate action among especially the higher emitting countries. So it is something that I think that warrants more attention from the international relations and national security communities. Go ahead, Pete. I guess it just, well, maybe it's worth making a clear distinction. Marine cloud brightening, I, I kind of see that as a bottom-up idea for geoengineering. You know, Australia could do this in Australian coastal waters, and it's 
would it just be judged Australian business? I, perhaps. Whereas stratospheric aerosol geoengineering is inherently global. You could maybe limit it to just the Arctic, but that's still many countries are sort of under that and the impacts would be felt beyond the Arctic. So this is an inherently global intervention. It's also an intervention, stratospheric aerosol engineering, which you can't really fine tune to a very great degree. You can't like create a cooling patch just over the US and make it warmer over China. No, you can only have sort of latitudinal bands. You can make it thicker at the tropics, thicker at high latitudes or, or even. That's effectively the range of control you have. And given that all countries agree that global climate change is bad and are trying to act on it, there's potential for cooperation in this. I guess it does conjure up ideas of superpower conflict and so on. But I think a, qu a research question, we don't know the answer yet, is to what extent what China would like to do with the climate differ from what the US might want to do or India. They might agree on more than they disagree on. I mean, you can imagine they would certainly disagree on the specifics, but this is an idea where you, you aren't just hoarding benefit to your region or, or shifting harms to another. It's a global intervention with global benefits and risks. I want to close with an opportunity for you guys to talk a little bit about your own endeavors in climate podcasting. Earlier this year, you started the Challenging Climate Podcast, bi-weekly exploration of climate issues. You know, for our listeners, what should cause them to subscribe? How do you guys want to drive this conversation and, and what prompted you to uh, enter the fray? Well, I, I guess I felt there's, there's a lot of interesting conversations around the climate issue. And there's a lot of interesting debates to be had around the, the details of this problem and the responses to it. I think too much of the media and too much of the public discussion sort of focuses on the sort of black and white denialists versus activists side of things. And, and I think there's a lot of interesting stuff that you know requires you to dig a little deeper into the climate issue and to understand a bit more to actually see where the real sort of rubbing points are, the real points of tension are. So you know, nuclear energy is a great example. We had uh, Zeon Lights, who was a member of Extinction Rebellion, this, this radical group who now has formed a group promoting nuclear power because she believes that will make a big difference. We've had a few you know, senior scientists who are involved in the IPCC giving their take on a couple of working groups there. We had um, Neil Stevenson, sci-fi writer, who wrote a book on solar geoengineering, uh, Termination Shock. Uh, it was great to have that discussion. I mean, we, we sort of know the, the academic side of the world, and it was really fun seeing how he had taken this topic and fictionalized it and was quite aware of what happens when you fictionalize something, and discussing that was, was great fun. Yeah, I, I've enjoyed doing it so far. I'm having some great discussions. The way I see the gap that our podcast is hopefully filling is that there's no shortage of podcasts and other media that focus on the central issues of climate change, which are how to reduce emissions, what might the impacts be, particularly around reducing emissions in the energy sector. But there is this secondary ring around that of related issues that are either within climate change or they're related to climate change. So we've touched on carbon dioxide removal, and we spent some time on solar geoengineering, which is the area of, of expertise that Pete and I come from. But we hope to broaden the conversation by drawing additional attention to these adjacent aspects of the climate change conversation. Well, I'm a subscriber and uh, I enjoy it very much. So I recommend it to our audience. I want to thank you guys for coming on today. It's been really interesting. Could talk to you for hours about these issues. Thank you very much. 
Thanks to Jesse and Pete for joining Energy 360 this week. If you're interested in the work they're doing, I encourage you to check out their podcast, Challenging Climate. As always, you can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts and at CSIS.org. You can follow us for updates on Twitter at CSIS Energy. And thanks for listening. 